You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, we'll be looking at chapter 11. We're going to be reading together from Acts chapter 11, which is on page 919 of the Pew Bible, verses 1 through 18. Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Hear the word of God. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Well, we have seen how the door of the kingdom was opened wide to the Gentiles. God dispatched angelic messengers to both Peter and Cornelius. The Roman centurion was commended and told to send for the apostle. And in a vision, Peter learned that the Gentiles were no longer to be considered unclean. Thank God. In Christ Jesus, the promise to Abraham was finally being fulfilled. In you, God said, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was many centuries in the making, and finally it was realized in Jesus. As Peter was explaining the gospel to Cornelius and his household, as he pointed out, the Spirit fell upon all who were in the house. 
This precious gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the Jews at Pentecost, and now it's given to Gentiles. They spoke in tongues, they extolled God, and soon thereafter they were baptized. And Peter remained with them, supposedly to help them better understand Christianity, because the believing Gentiles were now considered equal members with the believing Jews. They received the word, they were filled with the Spirit, and they were accepted by God. And news of that event reached others who were throughout Judea. They were not as thrilled. This was a major development in the advance of the kingdom of God. So Peter goes up to Jerusalem, where he meets with criticism. The circumcision party, comprised of conservative Jewish converts, they claimed to believe in Jesus, but we find out they still revered the Jewish distinctions. It was thought that the Gentiles needed to be circumcised to be admitted into the church because for centuries, now think of that, centuries, this was the only way for non-Jews to become worshipers. You're circumcised. You follow the dietary laws. And those of this party, therefore, accused Peter of sinning because he ate with Gentiles, because they thought the gospel was still limited to Israel. If a Gentile was going to benefit, he had to convert to Judaism. And even then, he's going to be considered as a second-class believer because he could only go so far in the temple, only to the court of the Gentiles, they were like Jonah, the circumcision party who pouted when Nineveh was spared. You remember? God granted the Ninevites the gift of repentance, and Jonah's angry. The circumcision party is angry with Paul for fellowshipping with the Gentiles. So Peter explains in detail the events leading up to it. He recalls the vision of the great sheet, and he told them of God's voice, telling him of the Gentile inclusion. He rehearses how the man from Caesarea takes him to Cornelius. And finally, he explains how the Spirit fell upon them as he was preaching the gospel. And it was then that he posed the question that reoriented their thinking. If God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us Jews when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, well, then who was I that I could stand in God's way? And his logic is irrefutable. The same spirit who filled the Jews filled the Gentiles. And it was not as if Peter decided to do that. It was an act of the sovereign God. The Lord himself had flung open the doors of the kingdom for believing Gentiles. And had Peter refused to fellowship with them, he would have been found opposing God. You don't want to be on that side of the equation. So far from forfeiting his apostleship, this behavior confirmed it, and the whole episode was planned and executed by the Lord himself. And when that circumcision party heard this, they had nothing to say in opposition. To their credit, now we have to give credit where credit is due, the Jewish brethren said no more against what Peter had done. They began to understand that the Abrahamic promise was being fulfilled. 
God was permitting believing Gentiles to share equally in the covenant privileges. And they said, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. He not only gave the means of repentance, but he gave the grace of repentance. You know, the means have to do with a preacher standing up front, proclaiming the word. That's the means of repentance. No, they're talking about the grace of repentance. It has to do with the indwelling spirit enabling them to repent. Because neither you nor I can do that on our own. In whomever he dwells, he brings conviction and he gives comfort. And if you have ever truly repented, you must know that it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. So these Jewish brethren praised God for bringing these Gentile Christians in. It all ended up well. And I want us to look at this idea of repentance unto life. Three things. Number one, notice that the grace mentioned is called repentance. We hear that word all the time. What does it mean? It's a turning of the whole heart from sin to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a grace that involves two necessary and important things. The one thing is that from which we're to turn, sin. And the other thing is that to which we're to turn, Christ. First, it involves turning away from sin. You know, the Greek word there, Repentance actually means literally changing your mind. There's this reorientation of our thinking about ourselves and sin. Hebrews 6 makes reference to repentance from dead works. Dead works. Sinful works are dead works. They flow from death. They lead to death. They're dead works. And we repent by turning away from dead works from darkness to light. And this begins by recognizing and confessing our sins. Isn't that what David did? I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Without dodging the truth, David acknowledges his sin to God. He lays aside all of his excuses, no evasions, no extenuations. He looks at himself through the lens of scripture and he sees himself as he is. And his confession, mind you, goes far deeper than his sinful deeds, which are grievous. But it goes down into his sinful nature because he says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Do you see what he's saying there? He recognizes that his sinful deeds are simply the outflow of a sinful nature. Jesus says the same thing when he teaches from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, adulteries, thefts, you name it, from within. So what David is doing is giving a thorough acknowledgement of his human depravity. That's the disease with which every one of us is brought into this world. 
we're taught in our standards that original sin is the corruption of our nature by which, and get this, we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good and wholly inclined to all evil. Continually, (laughs) Genesis 6. All of us have a sinful nature. All of us were conceived in sin. So the first step in true repentance is realizing this truth and confessing it, which we heard this morning. If as sinners we don't admit the corruption of our hearts, we have not repented. Because a true penitent will begin to see as God sees and love what God loves and hate what God hates. He hates sin as sin, not just because he's afraid of it, but because he's ashamed of it. And we grow in that over time. And as long as David refused to acknowledge his sin, he was in misery. He tells us, you can find this, I think, at least in Psalm 32, he had no soundness in his flesh. There was no health in his bones. His body apparently was wasting away like this heavy burden, sin weighing upon him. He's groaning all day with physical symptoms. He says in verse 5 of 32, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. There you have it. A changed mind, confessed sin, turning away, alters his course. He finds forgiveness with God, one of the greatest of all redemptive benefits, forgiveness. And then he writes, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. That's the testimony of a forgiven man. His conscience had been cleared. Isn't it wonderful that God in his rich mercy forgives the sinner? Here's King David. He's an adulterer, a murderer, a liar, and a hypocrite. That's David. So heavy was his burden of sin that until he confessed, he was absolutely miserable, but then God forgave him, and he'll forgive you. I don't care what you've done or who you are. It makes no difference. You confess to the Lord, he'll forgive you. That's why Jesus died. The Bible teaches that it begins with confessing sin. Proverbs 28, whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. That's the promise. So that's the first thing in repentance turning away from sin. But the second thing involves a sincere turning in faith toward the Lord Jesus Christ. Absolutely essential. David enjoyed blessedness by taking his eyes off of himself and turning to God. True repentance, as we confessed, apprehends God's mercy in Christ. Psalm 51 As Pastor Pilon read, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, 
according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. You see, the true penitent does not go halfway by merely ceasing to commit sin. There is a counterfeit out there. There's a counterfeit that mimics repentance. It stops the sin. You can find all kinds of 12-step programs that will help you in this regard. You stop the sin. Change your behavior. And what happens is, it grieves the consequences of sin, but it doesn't change the heart. It feels the loss. An illustration, I think, would be the immoral and unholy Esau who had squandered his birthright. Do you remember him? Esau. His God was his belly, his mind was set on earthly things, and he despised the birthright that God had given him. Later, he regrets his folly because he missed out on his father's blessing. We're told that he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. So Esau deeply regretted his sin. He felt remorse. He turned away from his folly, but far too little, far too late. And his fatal mistake was not turning in faith to God. The fact is, he hated the consequences of his sin without hating the sin itself. Consider that classic text that distinguishes between true and false repentance that was read earlier. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief. We find this in King David and the Apostle Peter. They both sinned and they both sinned grievously, but both sought God's mercy in Christ. Worldly grief is what we find in Esau, who despised his birthright, experienced regret, felt remorse over its consequences, but that's the difference. Godly grief over sin, worldly grief over consequences. Esau feels shame, experiences unhappiness, mourns his losses, but he would not and he could not turn to God in sincere, saving faith. That's worldly grief. That's how the world repents. Over its consequences, they grieve over losing perhaps their job or their reputation, because sin is shameful. They grieve over losing their position or perhaps their spouse or their self-esteem. It leads to death. Just ask Judas Iscariot, who felt remorse for betraying innocent blood, but he never turned to God. He never confessed his sin and sought mercy. Esau, deeply sorry about his folly, but not about his own sinful nature. And yet David's sorry not only for the deeds, but his nature. You know, the tragedy of the unbeliever dying in his sins, the real tragedy of it all is that God is rich in mercy. If only a sinner will repent, truly repent, he'll find forgiveness. Hope in the Lord, says the psalmist, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. 
That's the reason why the prodigal son came to himself and returned home. He realized that his father's servants are treated far better than he was being treated, and his dad was a kind and generous and forgiving man. The character of the father brought him home. And that's why he risked coming back to face unknown consequences, because he knew his father's heart. You know, it's not just called repentance, but it's called a gift from God. It says in verse 18 that God granted repentance that leads to life. They didn't say that God granted the opportunity, but it said that God gave the gift. This grace that we call repentance was something given by the Spirit. It's not something that we're capable of manufacturing on our own. Just like faith itself, it's a gift that has to be received from the Lord. He's the author of it. He works it into the heart. He gives it to the elect, and he grants it to as many as are appointed to eternal life, according to Acts 13. And the need of repentance is so obvious because, mind you, how little is our love for Christ. You know, so many modern songs boast of our love for Jesus. How sadly mistaken, not to mention unbiblical, that is. They boast of our love for Jesus. I want you to think with me of that upper room when Jesus said, one of you is going to betray me. Do you recall how the disciples responded to our Lord's prediction? They became sad, and the Bible says, one after another, they said to him, is it I, Lord? Every one of them realized that he was capable of that horrific crime, that monstrous deed. Is it I, Lord? Not one of them said, is it him, Lord? Not one of them said, is it Judas, Lord? They each said, is it I? And you and I may wonder if, when we are tempted, that you and I would betray the Lord. The Bible teaches that if Jesus himself didn't keep us, we would. We have so little love for Christ. I have so little appreciation for his work, at least for what it deserves. And if we seriously considered how little is our love for Christ, I think we would be humbled in the dirt. Who would even think about boasting of his paltry love for Jesus. There is in our hearts such little faith and little grace and little love for Christ that there is no use crowing about how much we love him. We need to sing about how much he loves us. The best of us have faith and love that's no bigger than a grain of mustard seed. And this would depress me if it were not for the continual intercession of Jesus. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Why? Because he always lives to make intercession for them. So here we are, unloving, unworthy, ill-deserving sinners, and he prays for us. Isn't that what he said in his high priestly prayer? I don't pray for the world. I pray for you. 
And he stands there in heaven declaring his will for us to receive the gift of repentance. And all of our weaknesses, all of our sins, all of our failures day after day do not turn him away. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. He obtains for us this access into the throne room. And that's the only reason why sinners can approach a thrice holy God. And Peter discovered this truth by his personal experience. Oh, how he boasted of his love for Christ. You remember that? I'll die before I deny you. But shortly thereafter, three times he denied the Lord and even cursed. Monstrous deed. Monstrous. He's no better than Judas Iscariot. And Peter would have been next to Judas in the depths of hell had he not repented. And the only reason he repented was because Jesus was praying for him. Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And no one here and no one listening to my voice could ever truly repent apart from the intercession of Christ. Because the grace of repentance is a free gift bestowed by God himself. You might be familiar with, I don't know, maybe you've read about it before, that famous saying of Augustine. He says this in his confessions, Lord, give what you command and then command what you will. He understood that without Jesus, we can do nothing. God commands all people everywhere to repent. So Augustine and the church says, okay, Lord, you command me to repent. Please give what you command. And it's precisely what God granted to Cornelius in his house. It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And he's going to let you and I stumble. He's going to let you and I fall and show our weaknesses so that we'll learn to depend on him. Thomas Manton says it this way. We have, an, we have need of a savior to help us to repentance as well as to help us to pardon. What a tremendous mercy. When God gives repentance, do you realize that he never gave that gift to angels? These creatures so far excel us. It's amazing. Knowledge, power. They sinned willfully, irrecoverably, never gave them repentance. But to sinners chosen before the world began, he gives the gift of repentance, and he will never let us go. And nothing you can do will turn him away from you. Because the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. But that leads to the third and final and brief point. This gift of repentance is unto salvation. Notice it says it leads to life. And we have to recognize that it's no small thing to overcome the stubborn resistance of a sinner. 
We are by nature children of wrath. That's what Paul teaches. We're spiritually dead to the things of God. Dead people don't repent. Spiritually dead sinners can't repent. So repentance is this inestimable gift that God gives and it leads to eternal life. It's the life to to which repentance leads that is of the highest order. It doesn't lead to animal life. It doesn't lead to intellectual life. It doesn't even lead to spiritual life. It leads to eternal life. The true penitent may be assured of everlasting satisfaction in heaven. That's what we're talking about. And this is why God in his mercy has so far delayed the final judgment. There are some people, and you've probably heard them, and I have too. They say things like this. Where is the promise of his coming? Ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Yeah, right. When's he going to come back? And Peter reminds the scoffer, with the Lord, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years like a day. And he says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Every day is an expression of mercy. John Colbert asked me this morning why I said it was a good day. Every day is an expression of mercy because it's an opportunity for repentance. God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but he wants all to turn and live. May he enable all of us to do that very thing this day. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, this is something that we recognize can be received only from you. We recognize the solemnity and the awesomeness of what we're thinking about. And so we ask that you would grant everybody here this marvelous gift of repentance unto life. Help us to turn away from sin and help us to turn in faith to Christ Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. For listening, for more information or to connect with us, visit us at redeemerohio.org.